Welcome everyone to this episode of Tech Cars Machines. This is another one of our episodes that's a result of a recent very exciting visit to CES in Las Vegas. One of the great people we met there was Blair Lacourt of AI Systems. Uh, AI is broadly speaking in the automotive um, ADAS and assisted driving uh, segment. There's a lot more to what the company does and can do and Blair has a very fascinating background, really being involved in the strategy associated with major hardware manufacturers, major software providers, two um, uh, environments where things are built. And rather than provide too much information and too much background, I'll turn it over to Blair for a quick introduction and so we can benefit from his experience. Blair, please, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. AI right now is a public company, so people can sort of put in the ticker and, and look up some information. but Maybe tell us about what the what 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 the point of AI's creation was. And I know you know the founder and have come across him. So maybe you can tell us that story because I think to some extent it's still informative of uh, how the company um, delivers its solution. Sure, and you know it probably makes sense to take one step backward uh, and and looking at um, in my my time in the middle of my career as an investor with TPG. One of the things that they uh, pounded into my head is, uh, you know, understand the macro trend before you actually decide to invest. And by, you know, extension, understand the uh, macro trend as I was an investor in AI and then I actually joined the company. So it, it may be um, interesting to take a maybe even two steps back mm -hmm. to think about what's happening in technology today. Um, I've been around uh, for a pretty long time. And uh, when I first entered technology, it was all about hardware. Um, I was uh, head of strategy for a company called Sun Microsystems, which was a phenomenal company. Um, you'd know many of the executives. Scott McNeely was a pioneer in the industry. Um, Eric Schmidt was the head of R&D who went on to great things um, with Google. Uh, Carol Bartz went on to uh, run Autodesk as well as Yahoo. Um, Mr. Zander went on to run Motorola a phenomenally interesting staff. And one of the things that they uh, pounded into my head, or in fact, two of the things they pounded into my head were, um, let's take a look at technology and let's take a look at what are the trends, which is similar to, you know, let's look at the macro. And second is that it's really, technology's challenges and opportunities are really about people. So never lose that uh, perspective. So with that as kind of a, an entry, what I would say is I started out where hardware was king um, and hardware learned to commoditize itself to become cheaper so it would be deployed. I went into software. Software was all about uh, vertical markets, giving you specific capabilities. But then it became clear that the movement of data to information and transportation of that data uh, into a network was where the real value is. So while hardware, software and uh, network dynamics are separate entities in, in essence, when you look at take a systems approach, they are what is driving the technology world today. And in specific, if I was gonna take a look at the historical context, I would tell you that um, there's a, another set of trends that has driven platforms for technology. One is the entry of very low cost communication, which started with the internet in the late 90s. Um, whereas when you started a company back then, you would have to spend 60, 70, million dollars to build out ISPs and points of presence, basically free today. Telcom, there is no such thing as long distance. Um, in the uh, early 2000s, 
the advent of the BlackBerry and then the iPhone and Android made distributed computing free. And then ultimately AI and VI with that information led to IoT. Uh, the trend that we see today that I think will have just as big an impact as each of those is the movement um, of this type of IoT technology to things that move or things that watch things that move. It's all about making those things smarter. And that many people will say is called semi-automation or automation. So taking a deep breath there, um, my interest in this field, my interest in AI is really following what's happening with automation and how it's going to make every asset that you own, every piece of infrastructure you interact with and every vehicle that you interact with smarter over time. Now, how do I know that? Because it's already started to happen. Uh, today, your iPhone, if you have an iPhone, already has um, a set of sensors in it, including the kind of sensor that my company makes, a LiDAR system. Um, when you drive down the street or go onto a toll road, there's cameras, there's radar, and in many cases now, there's LiDAR systems as well, sensing the environment and watching you. In fact, the rockets that we send, including Elon Musk's rocket, out into space all have the same type of sensing technologies. So we are in a 20-year trend where almost every piece of infrastructure and every asset will become smarter. And so one of the questions that we have to ask ourselves as either a strategist or an operator is what is gonna be the impact and how can I participate in that in a positive way? Um, AI was something that I was an original investor in seven years ago. And once I understood what we were doing, I actually uh, got sucked back in um, to the operating company uh, as, a, as a coach, then as president, and then ultimately as CEO when we, uh, when we went public. What did I see in AI? I saw a vision uh, from Louis Dusson and um, Jordan Green, the founders, that I thought was extremely mature. Uh, they weren't looking at it as a piece of hardware, as we said. People usually start with hardware. They looked at it as a system. And their argument was, if I design a system for the future, um, then I will actually, as um, Wayne Gretzky would say, don't go where the puck is, go where the puck is going to be. Um, I will be able to add more value um, in information processing. So while we are designated as a LiDAR company, when most people talk about us, um, we do collect information. In reality, we are an information company that happens to use LiDAR at the core of our product set. And secondarily, the automotive industry as a durable good industry tends to be an industry that's global, that has large volumes, and that is highly focused because of regulatory on functional safety and reliability. Therefore, many technologies that come out of R&D who run through the automotive industry will end up everywhere um, that everywhere that you see technology. And, and I think that same trend is happening right now. So what did we see as AI seven years ago and where are we today? Um, AI started again as a company trying to figure out how to collect the right information. Um, most sensors in the world that collect information today, especially in the automotive industry, have been cameras and radar systems, which are both phenomenal systems. Um, although radar took 15 years to drive down the hardware costs, uh, cameras about 11 years. The, the belief is that systems like LiDAR were in the four to seven year window, about two years into it, to drive costs down to um, mass distribution. Um, but there's something interesting about both cameras and radar. Uh, they both guess. They go into the environment and they bounce off things and then you try to interpret what they see. 
there is one sensor that does not guess, and that is the LIDAR system. That's why when you look over the past, um, you know, almost 70 years, um, LIDAR has been used in telecommunications, it's been um, used in mapping, and it's been used in the Defense Department as the only thing that can truly tell you where things are and how they're positioned against other things. Um, and so it's called a deterministic sensor, right? And so the, our entire premise is how to get deterministic spatial data um, into a system where a car, you know, a toll road or an asset can make a decision that is um, better and more reliable than say a human making that same decision. You know, Blair, those are those are some great points. I um, I really appreciate that. One of the interesting things you uh, you mentioned about lidar uh, and the fact that it doesn't really need to guess um, is that a lot of people are assuming now that the cameras are getting good enough where their guess is good enough, where you don't necessarily need lidar. And what I would point to for those folks is your iPhone has some pretty good cameras in it, and it has a phenomenal processor uh, in it, and that entity. Uh, includes lidar uh, for for uh, for for some of its information gathering and for for fusing all the all the information that that uh, that that device gets. You know, it, it's it's actually a great point, and one of the things that I think gets lost, and maybe this comes from uh, having been in a bunch of different industries, is that um, there is no perfect sensor. The same way that humans have multiple sensors, there is no one sensor. I'm not a big believer that lidar can eliminate cameras and radar. I also am not a big believer that um, for certain things, high speeds, high risk, lateral entry, small objects at distance, that you wouldn't need a deterministic sensor. So um, radars and cameras are very good. They continue to get better every day, but they will always have both positives and negatives. Radar is wonderful because the wavelength is longer and therefore it goes through obscurance better and it goes longer distances, but it has its own weaknesses. It bounces around a lot. You have multipath issues. And if you look at it in comparison, the best radar system, 4D radar system in the world today, um, which can be used for certain things and, and be great, has a million times less resolution than our LIDAR system. Now, what about cameras? Cameras have a lot of resolution. You can, you know, you take in the pixels and you try to figure out edges and contrast, but it also has its own weaknesses, both range and the capability to deal with weather and light changes. So what you find is that when you put a diagram together, that these three types of sensors actually replicate mm -hmm. um, how a human would see and do it hundreds of times better. And if you're gonna actually give away in automation decision-making capability, we want the sensors to be a hundred times better than what a human would have for safety. And that's really where we are today. We're very, very close. Um, the big issue with every new technology that enters usually is cost and reliability. Um, LiDAR costs have come down 90% in the last you know, four or five years, and the reliability has gone up significantly. So we believe that in most cases, you will have a combination of radar cameras and LiDAR, and in some way or another, um, they will help each other to come up with the right decision. Excellent. Uh... Blair, let's talk a little bit about, if you don't mind, uh, in terms of what you offer, the various end markets that you um, uh, th that you operate in, and obviously, sort of, uh, just sort of looking at the left on the website, if you will, it's automotive on one side, 
through and including uh, trucking, smart infrastructure, things that are off highway and aerospace and defense. How do you configure your solutions for each of those markets? And why are you able to address so uh, such different markets with your core technology? Sure, and a lot of this has to do with what I just said. We took a very different approach. Um, back in 2004, 2005, when the DARPA challenge took place, which is was the Army's way of actually starting lighting the fuse for this transition of technology, um, they did the test in the desert at very low speeds um, with no acceleration, deceleration, and no objects entering the scene. They just needed to find out, could you get a car to drive itself, um, which is a great place to start. Um, however, one of the unintended consequences from that was while LiDAR was considered the technology that you needed, um, it tended to be passive LiDAR. And what do I mean by that? It means that of the 85 or so companies that actually created LiDAR, um, 84 of them designed hardware-specific um, passive systems, which is what we did in the military maybe 40, 50 years ago. They're very good systems. In fact, for a mapping system, they're excellent, right? You just you drive along and you collect information and then you batch process it back. But if the decision had been, or the question had been different, um, ultimately, if you knew the future, you would have said cameras and radar are gonna be awesome. And we don't need LIDAR for everything, but what we do need LIDAR for is things that cameras and radar can't do by themselves, which is again, high speeds, lateral entry, 90%, of risk usually comes from the side very, very quickly. Long distances, because the higher the speed you're at, the more you need to see in front of something and small objects on a road surface. You would have then said, I don't need a passive system. I need an active system that actually can have two-way communication and that can be reprogrammed depending on what the need of my, um, of my vehicle, my infrastructure, or my asset is. So the way we approached this was the opposite way. We started with the software system and decided that it would have to have a few attributes. One is that it would have to be high performance, which meant that we couldn't be limited um, the way that many of the coaxial LiDAR systems were done today, where you send and receive through the same aperture. So we immediately broke the send and receive, which when you break the send and receive, the laser and the receiver, you move all the complexity to software. Now, if I was going to give you an analogy of who's done that, that's what targeting systems do. That's what reconnaissance systems do. That's what satellite systems do. Why? Because they were optimized for high performance. So number one, we picked high performance. So we knew we'd have to use um, a certain type of hardware and we'd have to configure it in what we'll call a bi-static uh, capability. The second thing we decided to do was it didn't make sense to design a widget for one market. We wanted to create a platform that could be used across multiple markets where the hardware would be modular enough that as new advancements came in, we could bring down the cost of hardware and bring up the actual performance faster than waiting for a hardware cycle. I learned this early on um, you know, in Sun Microsystems as well as in Autodesk. If you have to wait a year or 18 months for a, for a, a software cycle or hardware cycle, you're not innovating fast enough. So we basically created a modular hardware, high performance modular, and that had to be software driven. So everything that we do, every piece of hardware we put down is, is controlled by software. And ultimately, we also decided that we would actually sell through partners. So in automotive markets where they're actually high 
um, intensity, functional safety. You have to build a specific manufacturing line and take on warranty. Um, there's no reason to try to blow up a value chain. We actually sell in automotive by licensing to anyone who would like to customize our technology. In other markets, which are much narrower and actually have a lot more software needs because they are narrow and therefore they're, they don't have large companies working on software, such as rail, construction, agriculture, um, or, um, or other sub-markets, we actually built one manufacturing line where we actually produce this modular hardware and we allow you to use this operating system to actually um, configure your product specifically. So we're very different than a company that builds a piece of hardware and sells it directly um, and sells it into predominantly most of our peers into one market. Um, we are an enabling technology that has different ways to get to market. I would say we look more like, say, an arm limited for uh, your um, viewers that actually have been in the semiconductor market where we design the company to be agile. Um, now we will produce an entire system, hardware, software, and configure it for you. But we also give people the capability to use their own systems integrator or in extreme cases, such as in aerospace and defense or say automotive, we'll license to some of these large tier one uh, companies to deliver the product um, in a very specific way. Great. And I think uh, I kind of know the answer, but I think it's still very impressive. So maybe if you could sort of uh, restate it, if you will, for our uh, for our listeners, the trucking environment is the one that places of the things that move on the highway. The trucks are the ones that put a lot of demand on uh, on anything to do with ADAS or sensing or or anything where the car uh, where the vehicle would actuate either a brake or steering or or acceleration. And that's because uh, these are vehicles that weigh 80,000 pounds with uh, with their cargo, have a bend in the middle, are long, they don't stop on a dime. You need a lot of heads up to be able to accurately and safely bring that um, vehicle to a stop, for instance. Tell us a little bit about why, uh, how the AI solution is particularly good uh, for that environment and maybe with some comparisons. Sure. And, and look, and I would even step back a lot. The question I often get is what happened to um, robotic taxis, right? All the, the market for sensors, obviously, there's been eight, the cameras and radar have been used in ADAS for, for many, many years. Um, and what you found is that when you look at level one or level two type capabilities, even things like automatic braking, um, when it was first introduced, it was a 20, 20, 22% to 25% net promoter score, which meant people were very weary and they would not recommend it to a friend. Within one year, AAA came out with a study and said it jumped to 85%. What that told you is that for a consumer, once they've experienced how technology can help them, they immediately got on board. And you tend to have an 80 to 90%. Um, if you've had a feature in your car before, you're going to get the next car is going to have the, the feature that you had before. So that's a very good sign on the consumer market. The robo-taxi market was actually going to skip over consumers as the first implementation and the theory of the case, and I, full disclosure, um, TPG, where I was, was one of the investors in Uber. I'm a per, I was a personal investor in Lyft. I sat on the Silver Car Board, which is uh, the mobility program that was sold to Audi for their mobility. Mm -hmm. And I also was involved in buying the largest uh, van pooling company. So I understood mobility extremely well. So people ask, well, what happened to that marketplace? A lot of money went in and a lot of technology was developed. And I would argue, that we could, we have robo taxis today. The challenge was 
there's not a business model today because most of the companies who would use a robo taxi, uh, like Domino's Pizza or um, DoorDash or Uber, don't want to put cars on their balance sheet until you know that the point in time that comes that that makes sense. So if you assume that there a lot of R and D was done for robo taxis, the next natural extension of that would have been let's take some of that robo taxi technology that we've been developing, let's slim it down to put in a consumer car. So maybe it doesn't do everything, but I'll call it autonomy on demand, right? And so um, what I believe, and this is, this is my opinion, is the most likely first real cases of deployment where um, you'll see great value is gonna be high performance because it's so much better than the camera radar, which would be highway autopilot. It's in fact the number one uh, feature that people would like to pay for. In fact, while Tesla has some issues about that calling their system autopilot and assuming that it should be used on the highway with no hands. Um, in fact, people are paying ten dollars to $12,000 for that pseudo feature. Um, so there's value in it. Um, that will come out. It takes a few years. But if you look at the closest um, functionality in the business market to that, it is hub-to-hub -hub trucking, which is really highway autopilot. And to your point, there's two driving factors to trucking, excuse the pun, that make it more likely that trucking um, ADAS or high or hub-to-hub trucking will actually maybe even jump ahead of consumer. The first is that you own your own truck. So I don't have to put a feature in and then wait to sell it to someone and educate them. You own the truck, you know how long it lasts, um, and you know what you do with the truck, and you know if you can increase safety or help drivers that there's a value. So it's an ROI. It looks a lot more like what we hoped with robo-taxis. I could go to a business and sell them on ROI. The second piece, which you alluded to, is the problems are also really difficult because the trucks are so heavy. So not only are they at speed, but they take longer to stop. Therefore, having a LiDAR system and a high-performance LiDAR system is a prerequisite to actually enable that kind of automation. So on the traditional automotive side, what I would tell you is, that you will have ADAS systems. There are low-end systems with LiDAR in it today. You're gonna to have highway autopilot in the next couple of years, which will, I believe, be a, um, counterintuitively, excuse the pun, a killer feature or finding a way not to kill people. Um, trucking from a B2B market is moving extremely fast. And then as you move to the industrial markets, remember, they have very similar components. They're, they, you already own a massive agricultural truck. You already own a mining truck. You already own a rail car. So the argument, do you want to put another sensor on it, is pretty straightforward. Either you're actually going to add value and, and make the company more money or make it uh, safer, or you're not. Then you move into infrastructure. Um, every stoplight in the country already has, most of them have cameras and or radar in them today. They will evaluate, will the city be safer? Will I increase throughput? Will I be able to um, get different types of information for the city? Um, they will move on. Toll roads, I look at much like trucking um, because they require long distances and high performance. Because if you can actually identify the speed at which vehicles are moving, if you can identify how many axles they have, if you can get 100% read of their license plate and you can see a, a kilometer, you don't have to put a camera every lane and you don't have to put a camera um, every 50 meters. So what I'm telling you is 
our philosophy is that LIDAR, just like cameras and radar, will be applied across multiple markets as a core technology, but it will be applied differently. So our argument was let's find partners and let's actually make our system on one end completely configurable and on the other end, it, uh, or customizable on the other end, configurable so that people in that industry can actually optimize it to, to make money. So we look at trucking um, as moving very quickly. We also look at, in the ITS space, things like toll roads. They have two things in common, high speeds, high risk, lateral entry, small objects. Now, other markets would fit that, such as aerospace and defense, which we've just started to, uh, to sell into. But I hope that gives you, for people who aren't involved in this um, every day, a sense of if you believe that the next level of the uh, next jump in technology is going to be automating things around the world, if you believe sensors are going to be needed to give those things more intelligence, if you believe deterministic sensors, which don't guess and can see long distances in three dimension, um, and you believe that you'll need some horizontal technology to be customized, that's really our model right, is to go out there and actually not be a hardware widget, um, but to be a system that allows you to collect spatial information. Absolutely. And and the performance uh, capabilities of your of your system, right? There'll be there'll be low end applications where the camera is going to be good enough or something else is going to be good enough. But when you really when you really need it to be reliable because of life safety, because of other uh, other um, uh, attributes, then, then you are kind of in a class of one uh, in terms right. of the if, to deliver if that. Take, but if you, if you take it one level, you said this at the very beginning, the world is not where it was when I was at Sun Microsystems where a new piece of hardware just you know does changes it by itself or, or at Autodesk with a new piece of software. There's a lot of technology out there and we it's being used in a system to create information. And if you believe that, that it's not only that maybe LiDAR doesn't need to be needed to certain applications, but in others, maybe the use of cameras and radar and LiDAR together is even more important. One of the reasons we patented, it's shocking to me that we were able to, to patent this, is the ability to take feeds in. So if a radar system sees something, but it can't tell what it is, a LiDAR system, our LiDAR system can actually take that feed um, and actually go out and capture that spatial data. So it doesn't have to be fused completely, but it can get hints. Very similar, humans, 80% of human vision is not done in the brain. It's done in the visual cortex at the edge of the network, and 40% of human vision is impacted by its other sensors. When you hear a sound and you look right, you're foveating and focusing to where the sound's coming from. When you know what something smells like, like a pie, you look for something round. When you know what a person uh, looks like, you scan 100 times faster. So in essence, what I believe is that the systems of tomorrow for automation will use biomimicry as a, as a motivation. Mm -hmm. So in some way, it's back to, back to the future. While we are inventing these great technologies, systems um, can take a lot of hints from nature. So um, I encourage anyone out there, you know, this is one point of view around what's going to happen in the world around automation and why sensors matter. But love to hear from you if you think I, you know, I can be smarter. I'm open to uh, suggestions. Should they uh, ping you on LinkedIn? Ping me on LinkedIn. Excellent, excellent. Well, thank you very much. I'm I'm so glad we got this uh, chance to connect as a result of uh, CES, and uh, well, I'm sure we'll run into each other uh, uh, many times during the year since we only live a couple miles apart. I I hope so, and I, you know I'll leave with go green.
<laughs> this is uh, for our for our listeners. We chat a little bit about some mutual history with respect to Dartmouth. Take care. Great. Thank you. Bye bye.